There's something transcendental about rain in the desert, the smell of ozone in the air, the distant roll of thunder, and the pitter of rain hitting the dry earth. Seeing rain in a location that rarely gets it, you realize how dependent the land is on the atmosphere, how grateful the earth itself is for the sky above. The time between these storms are growing. The number of raindrops hitting the ground are fewer. Over the past few decades, the western United States has had more dry years and is getting less and less rain. It's possible that the west is on the cusp of a mega drought, one that could go on for decades, even up to a century. Our modern society has not seen a drought of this magnitude in the United States. How would it affect everyday life in the West? And why is it happening now? This is Spark Dialogue Podcast. You could find us at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or wherever you find your podcasts. Spark Dialogue tells the stories of science and technology and how they relate to our society, history, philosophy, culture, and our lives. I'm your host, Elizabeth Fernandez. The supporters of this podcast will have access to a bonus mini-episode about one of the ways we learned about past climate through tree rings. Specifically, we'll talk about what tree rings can tell us about the history of Native American tribes and how tree rings can help fill in the gaps, explaining not what happened to these ancient cultures, but why. You'll also see some amazing images of dust storms and life in the Dust Bowl back in the 1930s, you can access all of this through the Patreon page at patreon.com sparkdialogue. And if you're not a patron and you want to become one, you can join by going to the website at sparkdialogue.com or the Patreon page at patreon.com sparkdialogue. Hi, I'm Casey Bowles, and I'm a postdoctoral research scientist at Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory of Columbia University. People talk about the climate changing. How do we know this? How do we know what the weather was like hundreds or even thousands of years ago? It turns out that the Earth has recorded what the weather was through natural means. We just have to know where to look. So information on the climate system and the weather that it produces, particularly the most extreme events, is not coming from our observed record, but is captured in paleoarchives. So what I mean by paleoarchives are these natural sources of information like ice cores, lake sediments, buried soils, and tree rings. And each of these offers a different way that we can date them and then infer from different proxies what climate system was doing and what the conditions were like. Tree rings in particular have proven to be very reliable recorders of climate and that can be dated to the precise year that a particular event happened and shown us, revealed to us over the last millennium a number of climatic extremes, particularly in North America, where we have a very well-developed network of tree ring records. Trees are particularly interesting. If you've ever seen a cross-section of an ancient tree, you can see hundreds of concentric circles growing larger and larger as you move outward. Each of them signify a growing cycle, one year each. Reading tree rings is kind of like reading a history book. You can see past climate events, each leaving their record in the growth of the trees. So the width of this ring that they're adding each year tells us something about the conditions they were growing in. 
And so if we're looking at a series of rings and you see one particularly wide ring, we would infer that the year was a particularly wet year, assuming that that tree was growing in water-limited conditions. Verse vice versa, if we have a, a series of very, very thin rings, we would infer that that was, was a series of dry years. And then the relative uh, thickness of these rings to each other gives us a sense of the severity of any particular event. Each tree leaves its unique story. Each type of tree responds to its environment differently. This is one of the many factors that goes into dendrochronology, which is this field of tree ring research, is knowing your site setting very well, because not all trees are growing under the same conditions, so they're not limited by the same things. So trees that are growing in the southwest, say, it's typically hot all the time, so they're not so impacted by temperature, but they are very impacted by water availability. This is in contrast to, say, trees in the boreal forests of Alaska, where they don't necessarily have a hard time getting water, but they are impacted by extreme temperatures. And so and if you know this about how your trees are growing, you can pick out what climatic aspect you are able to reconstruct from those rings. Now you may be thinking, trees only live for so long. The trees in my backyard are only about 10 years old. Trees in the forest where I go hiking are maybe 50. Sure, there are few trees that live hundreds of years, but they're few and far between. How can we establish a history that goes back not just hundreds of years, but thousands of years? Scientists can do it by creating a library of tree rings. Look at the trees that are living, but also look at the trees that have fallen, or old logs that may have been cut down hundreds or even thousands of years ago, and date it using radiocarbon dating. There's a lot of fun field work involved in building up these networks of, of tree ring records so that we can do these kind of regional continental assessments of climate. Each tree, yes, we're going to a forest or looking for the oldest growth that we can find, but we're also able to use fallen logs by cross-stating them. So this is where you've collected tree ring records from multiple trees and you can line up the rings and so we can take from a living tree and then extend back in time with using a fallen or dead tree to build up these records that are thousands of years long. Now, in certain areas of the world and in the United States, there are some great old growth trees like um, Doug fir in, in Arizona. Uh, but unfortunately for the eastern U.S. has been quite heavily logged, so we don't have as old records there, which, which is why tree ring research, you can see a lot, has come out from the western United States. With this record of climate reaching back thousands of years, scientists can see large-scale weather patterns. One of these are mega droughts, droughts that don't just last for years, but ones that last for decades. There is not a specific quantitative measure that makes a drought a mega drought, but they're qualitatively characterized as being long periods of extreme dryness. So for these mega droughts that have been identified 
in the history of the United States, these droughts lasted anywhere from 30 to 100 years. So it's really the duration and the intensity over that duration that qualifies a drought as a mega drought. And so we've seen these over the last two millennia pop up in the United States, um, particularly around 800 8, um, CE, the mid 1100s, the 1200s, and then the late 16th century mega drought that happened um, around 1550 to 1590. These are large scale events, and their cause is also large scale. At a basic level, our climate as a result of the oceans talking to the atmosphere by an exchange of energy. So drought in the western U.S. is most frequently connected to the tropical Pacific Ocean, specifically the El Nino Southern Oscillation or ENSO. ENSO is essentially the catch-all term for describing El Nino and La Nina phenomena. So in La Nina years, we'll see sea surface temperatures in the eastern tropical Pacific are cool versus whereas they're quite warm in the Western tropical Pacific. And this sets up a atmospheric pattern that makes the U.S. very vulnerable to drought. So this is because during La Nina, storm tracks that would typically deliver moisture to the Western U.S. are being pushed north. We are seeing some pretty weird things in the world today. Wildfires in California, lakes, and reservoirs, normally supplying nearby towns and farms, as well as wildlife, are shrinking. Casey and her colleagues are suggesting that the western United States is possibly on the cusp of not just a drought, but on another mega-drought, one that could potentially go on for decades. Washington, Oregon, California, Idaho, Utah, Colorado, Wyoming, Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada. But this drought is different. It wasn't set up like previous mega droughts with La Nina, which is responsible for pushing storms further north and depriving those southern states of moisture. So why are we here now, on the cusp of another mega drought? With human-caused warming, we've increased the temperature of our planet at this point by about 1.8 degrees Celsius. And this impact can be felt in a variety of of ways, but specifically when it comes to drought, it is related to the demand the atmosphere places on the surface for water. So warming temperatures will cause a cascade of impacts, but most significantly for drought is that a warmer atmosphere is a thirstier atmosphere. So any moisture will be drawn out of ecosystems much faster than it would have been otherwise. So we find with this drought, without our thumb on the scale, the conditions would be severe, but it would not be exceptional and would not be drying at the same rate as these previous mega droughts. So when it comes to this particular drought, without that effect, we find it would actually be quite a moderate run-of-the-mill drought. Definitely severe, but not anything outside the norm. However, with this additional demand that we've caused through emission of greenhouse gases, we find that this drought is actually twi- almost twice as bad as it would have been otherwise without our influence. If it continues on this trajectory, it would still be going to be comparable to these past mega droughts, which is not something we've had to deal with in our modern society. 
When the weather is warmer, the atmosphere can hold more water. That means there is less to rain down to fill up our lakes, rivers, and aquifers. And what is there on the ground is more greedily being sucked away. It's being evaporated from lakes, rivers, but also being um, drawn out through evapotranspiration through plants. And it's also being drawn out of the soil, so there's less soil moisture. When droughts happen in different parts of the world, we see similar things. Warming temperatures are creating worsening drought conditions in places like sub-Saharan Africa, Australia, the Middle East, and India. We can see some parallels between these regions because, you know, this warming is a global phenomenon. The number of these places, so say, you know, the interior of the United States is a semi-arid region, much like the Sahel in the sub-Saharan part of Africa. And so it's going to be quite similar. I mean, you see how these effects play out at the surface, even if the dominant ocean atmosphere anomaly is not the same. The Pacific Ocean is a dominant driver of climate worldwide. It's just, it's a huge, it's a huge reservoir of energy. And so you will often see the influence of ENSO, El Nino and La Nina, crop up in the climate of many regions across the globe. But its relative significance varies, of course, depending on where you are. The current drought started in the year 2000. Unfortunately, there's no way to know how long it will last. It could last one more year, and it could last 80. At this point, the only way we know a drought is over is when it's over. It could end this year. It could end 10 years from now. It's not possible to say at this point. So these mega droughts are often seen as the worst case scenario for water managers. So when it comes to this drought and that it's on the same trajectory as these mega droughts, we need to start thinking about what are we going to do when we don't have the amount of water we expected for up to a century. What does this all mean? It won't rain as much as we're used to, and that will affect our crops and our rivers but the consequences can be much more far-reaching. Something that we're already seeing in the context of this drought and the overdrawing, particularly on groundwater reservoirs, and that that's leading to a sinking of land. So there are all these knock-on effects that come with drought that we also need to, to be aware of, particularly in the Western U.S., where in the last 40 years, the amount of area burned in wildfires has exploded. And this is also relating to warming and drying. So there are a lot of other extreme events that drought can spark. And that risk becomes greater the more severe and longer a drought lasts. There have been a lot of bark beetle outbreaks in forests, so it affects the health of forests as well. And that can then also have a cascading effect in that we count on these forests and other areas of vegetation to draw down carbon from the atmosphere. So it's kind of hard to say when how these Every, all these connected things will impact one another as a drought develops. But we can see in 
ancient records and in archaeology how this can play out in society. We haven't seen a drought like this in the western United States since the 1500s. A lot has changed since then. Huge cities now exist in the west. Phoenix, Denver, Albuquerque, Los Angeles. Many of these cities get their water from aquifers, giant underground pools of water that are now supporting millions of people, or river sheds. This was not the case hundreds of years ago. It's not just population. Businesses, industry, and corporations also have made the western United States home. And some of these have huge water requirements. How will a long-lived drought affect these cities? I do think that something will have to give because the population that's living in these areas is millions more people than there were in the 1930s, which was our last real visceral experience of this type of intense drought. We have the technology to be much more adaptable than necessarily societies in the past. However, there is precedent that when these mega droughts occur, you'll see destabilization of civilizations. Now, this is not to say that anything that happens in a human society is because of what was happening in the climate. But when if you already have political or economic instability and you then add a huge drought on top of that that impacts all your water resources, it tends to increase the destabilization. To make things worse, our perceptions of what is normal has been thrown off. The 20th century was actually a very abnormal wet period for the Western United States. That means that cities, businesses, and modern culture were all built around the idea that water is much more prevalent than it actually is. What's quite interesting, I find, in American history is that the 18 and 1900s were anomalously wet. But we didn't realize that at the time because all we had to go off were our observations. So when we're drawing up these water rights, we were basing it on this period of time where there was a lot of water. But when we look on to paleo archives, say like the tree ring records, that we see that this period was not the norm and that there's normally much less water available. And so we ha- we'll have to adapt to this new understanding of what is constitutes normal for these regions where we had historically enjoyed a lot of water in this great period of development and expansion. The United States may have never seen a mega drought before, but it has seen severe periods of aridity. One of these was in the 1930s, the time and place nicknamed the Dust Bowl. 1934 is identified in the tree ring record as being the worst drought year of the last millennium. So it does give us a sense of what can happen, what kind of impacts can we will we feel when you have an extreme drought overlaid on a period of economic instability. The Dust Bowl of the 1930s was mainly concentrated in the Great Plains, but its impacts were felt nationwide. This is largely due to the massive amounts of soil movement that was tied to the extreme aridity of this decade. So for a person who is living in the Southern Great Plains, say in Baca County, Colorado, from about 1933 onwards, you have hundreds of days a year with dust storms. 
there's even one recorded storm that lasted 96 hours of a persistent dust storm. There's reports of babies being suffocated in their cribs overnight from inhaling dust, people going outside wearing masks all the time. Um, It would cause electrical charge that would short circuit cars. So it was really living in a very different world than when you drive across the Great Plains today. So for someone who lived through the Dust Bowl, it was a really dramatic impact on their quality of life and in particular in their health. There are these newspaper reports of increased incidence of dust pneumonia. And we see in historical mortality records, large impacts in deaths that are related to cardiovascular and respiratory diseases, which is what we can see today in studies in the U.S. and from other parts of the world that it experience a lot of dust in the airs like Taiwan. We can see there's a really acute impact on mortality and life expectancy related to dust exposure. So if this is something that happens again, we can expect a lot of health impacts beyond just the lack of water. This event impacted food. It impacted livelihood. People became sick and some died. What made it even worse was that it was overlaid by one of the hardest economic times of the United States has ever witnessed, the Great Depression. You can see kind of these dual crises playing out, particularly in the Dust Bowl region of the Great Plains, where you have farmers who no longer had the economic capital to maintain their farms or that they maybe would have otherwise. So it's kind of an interesting interplay in that and to think about and how would humans have weathered the Dust Bowl if they weren't also dealing with the Great Depression and vice versa. The effects of the Dust Bowl were not just felt in the Midwest. The Midwest produces an enormous amount of food for the rest of the country. So any weather event there will affect people coast to coast. Particularly when you think about um, water-intensive crops like grapes and almonds that are being mostly grown in these drought-sensitive regions, it does have a big impact economically and then also just sustainably in feeding people. Dust storms. Massive dust storms. Storms that seem to turn day into night. Imagine an opaque wall of brown clouds behind which towns, mountains, and trees seemingly disappear. If you are inside of it, you could barely see. You are pelted with dust, dirt, and leaves. This is what it's like to be in a haboob, a giant dust storm that sometimes is seen in the southwest today. These dust storms are very similar to those that were seen during the Dust Bowl. There were storms during the 1930s that are very similar to the haboobs the Southwest experiences today. Um, These storms are typically caused by a low pressure system coming through, but instead of bringing rain, it brings dust. And that's how you get these huge black clouds that move across the surface. And so you can see there's the archetypal one from the Dust Bowl is Black Sunday, which was, I believe it was April 14th, 1935, where this 
massive storm, dust storm rolled through, uh, uh, reduced visibility to zero. So it was essentially turned day to night. That was the, the first of, of quite a few that happened in that time. So if you're using the haboobs in the Southwest as an example, is that yes, you would expect to see those more frequently and happening in broader areas than just the desert Southwest. So what can we do? Is there any way that we can prepare ourselves if this drought does continue? I would say to vote for leaders who are proponents of evidence-based policy, particularly leaders who prioritize your right to clean air and water, because without that, there can be no real quality of life. And I think that the Dust Bowl is a very good example of that, just as we spoke about what it was like for people who lived there, that you cannot build a fulfilling life if you cannot walk outside and breathe the air and drink the water. Global warming is still in its infancy. And with this warming trend, as we can see in this current drought, that it's going to take a lot more to get us out of a drought and a lot less to send us right back into a drought. And so even if we reduce emissions today, there's this part of climate change that's baked in and we're going to still be dealing with it 50 to 70 years from now. And so we really need to focus on sustainability and adaptability today because climate change is happening now. We may not be able to impact the day-to-day weather, but we still can make a difference in the long-term climate of our planet. This is just another manifestation of the changes we are creating on our planet today. But humans are adaptable. We are innovative. The first step is realizing that the actions we take really do impact the world around us. Once we accept that, we can accept the fact that we can change what we do. We can make changes to survive a drought, and we can make changes to make sure that droughts like this won't be as severe in the future. Spark Dialogue Podcast is produced by me, Elizabeth Fernandez. You can find us on the web at sparkdialogue.com, on Facebook and Twitter, or any of your podcasting platforms. Remember that if you're a patron of this podcast, you can check out the bonus content at patreon.com slash sparkdialogue. Thanks for joining us today, and see you in two weeks for another episode. Some of the background music you heard was produced by me. Others are clips from The Sky of Our Ancestors by Kevin MacLeod, Ave Marimba by Kevin MacLeod, The Long Goodbye by John Pasden, Longing for Tumbleweeds by Admiral Bob, Amazing Plan by Kevin MacLeod, and Millennials by Analog by Nature. More information about these songs and links can be found in the show notes at sparkdialogue.com.